0: Well, we are starting Thessalonians today, but that's not where we're beginning. I want you to turn with me over to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, chapter one, living in light of the last days is our new series on first and second Thessalonians. You might say, why are you covering both letters together? Well, because they kind of go together. One was written shortly after the other one. And it really is, it's a progression that we see prophetically. In a prophetic timeline, if you were to think of a prophecy in a linear fashion, they just fit together beautifully that way. The uh, book of First Thessalonians dealing with living in light of the rapture, and then Second Thessalonians living in light of the day of the Lord, which comes after the rapture. No, not we're not going to be here as believers. We'll be with the Lord, but nevertheless the focus in Second Thessalonians is on the day of the Lord, not the rapture of the church, and they're not the same. Now, let me say, as we begin today, the teaching of prophecy is a controversial issue today. It shouldn't be, but it is, because there are Bible deniers, people who don't believe the Bible, people who think it's a bunch of baloney, and it is a controversial issue on many fronts. Now, one of the reasons Bible prophecy today gets a bad rap is because there have been false claims and there has been some sensational teaching that has taken place, particularly over the last 50 years or so. Some of the teaching is sensational and they see, these people who are that way, they see a major prophetical significance in everything that happens in the world. You know, uh a shift in our economy or a, or a problem on Wall Street. And it's like, oh, here we go. This is it. You know, we're, we're going to go into chaos and we're going to go into, you know, the tribulation is coming because of this. And that means the rapture is going to take place at any moment. So, you know, I'm, I'm ready to go. Well, let me say, if you've trusted Christ as Savior, you need to be ready to go. You are ready to go in the sense of you've trusted Christ and he's going to come and take you out of the world. But you know, Thessalonians has to do with are we ready to be ready to go? How are we supposed to be living in light of those last days? But, anyways, there are these programs that'll do that. You know, they read into everything. There's There's some of them that are actually programs that are weekly programs that every single thing, boy, they want to tie it in and say this is connected and here's how it's connected. Now, I'm not saying nothing is, but what I'm saying, folks, is we need to be careful and not to say things or teach things that soon afterwards are proven to be false and we've got egg on our face, and worse yet, people think, well, see, that the Bible is not true. No, wait, the Bible's true. It's the messenger who messed up, okay? It's the speaker who messed up. Uh, I think everybody can, uh, well, not everybody, because we've got a lot of young people here, but a lot of us can think back to 1988, and there was a little short book that was written, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988, written by a man named Edgar Wisenant. And, of course, that didn't happen, And he kept, as time went on, adjusting his dates, which is, you know, you're just digging your hole, your grave a little deeper by doing that because no one knows the dates. No, you can't figure it out. Now, I know and I understand all the reasons because I used to be really pumped up about it that, you know, Jesus is coming on uh, the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, that's when he's going to come. But I want you to think about it, friends, and you're going to hear me say this a lot during this series. If Jesus has to come on the Feast of Trumpets, then the rapture's not an imminent event. If he has to come on that day, then there's 364 other days when he can't come. You see what I'm saying? So don't hold to that. Now, if that happens, super. And when that day comes around, I think, that'd be great because we know that the trumpet's gonna sound and all that, and that would be great if he did come. But if he doesn't, don't go crazy over that. Now, because of books like that, prophecy often gets a bad rap. And then there are those who today, by the way, their number is increasing, who do not believe that the church should be teaching or emphasizing prophecy. All right? They see it as unimportant and that you can't understand it anyway. So why teach it if you can't understand it? They'll say things such as, well, it divides people. Well, the truth does divide. Jesus said it would. So that's nothing new. But they see it as, as unimportant, okay? A lot of your church, not all of them now, but a lot of your seeker-friendly movement churches don't believe that we ought to be teaching prophecy. Just let that be and whatever is going to happen will happen. Kind of like the old Que Sera Sera song. Whatever will be, will be. Well, anyways, let's, we won't spend much time on that. They say we should just focus on the Christian life, on the here and now, not be concerned about the future. Well, let me just be very clear today, that perspective is absolutely wrong. It's not even debatable in light of scripture. It's absolutely wrong. Understand this. If we are to be preaching the whole counsel of God, I want you to understand, friends, that prophecy makes up over one-fourth of the Bible. Now, you are going to have a holy Bible in a different sense holy. You're going to have a Bible with a lot missing, a lot of holes in it, okay, if you are not preaching prophecy. As a matter of fact, and again, while we are not to set dates, to not teach prophecy is to ignore large portions of scripture. People, as in, they look at the book of Revelation, they say, well, no one can understand Revelation. Huh, well, that's funny because God says we can. Look with me to Revelation chapter 1 and look at verse 3. As a matter of fact, God says this. Now, I don't know about you. I'd rather listen to what God says than what man says. I'm going to believe what God says. He's never made a mistake. As a matter of fact, even goes further than that. We know because God is God, He can't make a mistake. And it says in Revelation, referring to the book of Revelation, it says this in Revelation 1:3 Blessed is he that readeth. You want to be blessed? Triple blessing if you read the book of Revelation. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy. So you read it and you listen to what it's saying and keep those things which are written therein. And then look at the next phrase. For the time is at hand. The time is at hand. Now, John wrote this around AD 95, 96, most scholars believe. And I go along with them. The time is at hand. So God says, blessed are they that read it, that hear it, and those that keep it. Now, I don't want to be robbed of the blessings of God. I don't know about you. So I'm just going to believe what God says, and I'm going to study this issue of prophecy. No, it's not all that we study here because the Bible touches on all of life. But it is something we need to be looking at. Now, with that in mind, go with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And uh, that is where we are going to begin. There is an important biblical truth we need to keep in mind. And you could almost say this is a theme that weaves its way really through all of prophecy. All of prophecy, not just 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, but all of prophecy, and it is this. Prophecy is not divorced from the everyday Christian life. Don't think of it as a separate category, you know? Well, I live my life, and then there's my prophecy box over here. No, friend, prophecy is not divorced from everyday Christian life. In reality, it is intensely practical and is a major motivating factor for us to serve Christ as believers. It's one reason we need to know it, and we need to believe it, and we need to be ready for Christ. Now, in way of introduction, Paul wrote this epistle... Between AD 50 and AD 52, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, but we're going to be focusing on 1 Thessalonians first, of course. It is one of his earliest epistles. On his second missionary journey, Paul spent less than a month in Thessalonica, but he had a very fruitful ministry with the people there. After leaving Thessalonica because of persecution, Paul, Timothy, and Silas, or Sylvanus, he's also uh, called in scripture. They went to Berea, not too far from there. Then Paul went to Athens, Greece. Timothy and Silas then joined Paul in Athens. Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to see how the church was doing. And then Timothy rejoined Paul in Corinth and told him how well the church was doing. And it's very encouraging to read 1 Thessalonians and see these things that were going on. From Corinth, then, Paul wrote the two letters to the Thessalonians, all right? Now, this city of Thessalonica, Thessalonica was a major port city of its day. Back then, it had a population of about 200,000 people. So it was a big city. It was on the main road connecting Rome with the Mideast, which is called the Ignatian Way, the major thoroughfare through there. The Thessalonica Church was a very young church. It's estimated between one and two years old. These are relatively new believers, but they had grown immensely, And they were a shining testimony for Jesus Christ. And so these are the people he is addressing. New babes in Christ, in a sense, they hadn't been saved long, but man alive. These people got saved and they took off. They took off spiritually. And by the way, that's the way it's supposed to be. Now, what is the purpose of this letter? Well, it's to strengthen, to encourage, and to motivate believers to stay faithful until Jesus comes back to strengthen, to encourage, and to motivate believers to stay faithful until Jesus comes back. Now, I want you to think about that because that doesn't just touch on the Thessalonians. That's for you and me. Remember, it is written to a local church or there are unique applications for us today. Yes, it's written to all believers, but particularly focusing on local church ministry, Paul gives clear instructions on how to live and gives clear teaching concerning the rapture of the church. He also distinguishes the rapture of the church with the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation period. And he he spends a lot of time on that, talking about that in 2 Thessalonians, and we will get there during this series. Listen carefully. 1 Thessalonians, it is worth noting that every single chapter ends with an exhortation to godly living because jesus could come back at any time that is a major factor in the entire study of prophecy this is the proper view of prophecy it should not make us lazy well jesus could come back at any time so i just kind of i'll quit my job and i'll just wait around for him no friend it should not make us lazy It should not make us fatalistic either. It should not make us depressed because of the days in which we live as they get darker. But it should motivate us knowing that the Lord could come back at any time. It should have an effect on the way we live as far as our godliness, personal godliness. And it should have an effect with life priorities we have. Why we're living. What are we living for? Can I ask you that today? What are you living for? There's a reason there's a driver in your life and in my life. First Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 1. Let's dig in. Paul and Silvanius, or Silas. Paul and Silvanius and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? It is is the church of the Thessalonians. Notice what it says. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that? Now, why is that significant? Here it is. He's not writing to a mixed group of people. He's writing to saved people. You always need to understand when you're reading the Bible, who is is being addressed by this. Now that's not to say lost people can't glean something from this, but that's not the audience. He's writing to believers here. Not a mixed group where there's some saved and some not saved. From a biblical perspective, a church always deals with believers. It's the, the word church, ecclesia, called out assembly, okay? In the context of the Bible, a called out assembly for God. Those who have trusted Christ the Savior are called out for him, for his purpose, called out of the world. We're not supposed to be like the world. We're supposed to be trying to reach the world. Very, very important. Paul recognizes them as such, as we will see, by the way, especially when we get to verse four. Now, therefore, his desire for them is to know, you notice in verse one, to know the grace of God and the peace of God in a practical way. In other words, he wants the Lord to be very real to them. Let me say, parents, okay? Now, we ought to be teaching our children the truth of Scripture from the day they're born. As a matter of fact, go ahead, talk to them while they're still in the womb. I'm okay with that. If you want to do that, great, good music, all of that kind of thing, all of those kind of things. But here's the point, here's the point. Somewhere along the line, they have to see the reality of Christ and embrace him for themselves. Somewhere they need to see the reality of Christ and trust in him as their savior for themselves. God has no grandchildren. Every person who's saved is a direct child of God, born of God himself. And we need to be thinking in those terms. And, 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 and then once they're saved, we want them to know the reality of Christ. And that comes through practical, down-to-earth teaching of the parents and also the modeling of parents. They have to see the reality of Christ in our lives. They need to see that consistency. Example is the biggest factor in child training, being a godly example of what a parent's supposed to be. Now, Paul wanted them to know the Lord. He wanted them to know the grace of God and the peace of God, okay? Remember this, we are saved by the grace of God and then once we're saved, we can experience the peace of God. Romans chapter five, uh, look at what it says. Romans chapter five and verse one, it says this. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, okay? Being justified by faith. What is that referring to, justified? Being declared righteous, okay? By faith. How is a person declared righteous in God's eyes? Not by your good works, not by the way you live your life, as a person, Can I say today, if you are trying to earn your way to heaven by being religious, by living in a Christian way, by being of a certain denomination or group or whatever, friend, if that's where your faith is in to get you to heaven, you're not going to go to heaven. That is not how you get to heaven. The only way you get to heaven is through what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you when he died and paid for your sins. Let me illustrate if this were to represent you and me. We're going to let my wallet represent our sin, okay? God says we're all sinners. That's not new revelation for any of us. We all do things wrong, don't we? God, though he loves us in spite of our sin, he loves us, but he hates our sin. You see, to get to heaven, you have to be sinless in God's eyes because heaven's a perfect place, and none of us are, though. Therefore, we have a problem. We are separated from God. So how are you going to get to heaven? Well, here's the truth of it. If you die in your sin... If you die without your sins being taken away and forgiven, then God says you'll spend forever separated from God. God doesn't want that for any of us. Now again, religion will not take away from sin. Going to church, doing good works, as we're going to see in just a moment, that won't take away sin. The only way your sin can be taken away is through death. A death payment has to be made. Now if we do it, we'll be lost forever. But God so loving you and me, not wanting us, to be separated from him. He took on flesh, this hand representing the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh. And he came to earth, lived a perfect life, and he went to the cross, and he went there to pay for your sin and mine. He took our sin upon himself. He made the complete payment, paying for every sin, past, present, and future, He was buried, he came back from the dead, and he says in his word that if you will put your faith in him, he will declare you as righteous. That's what the word justified means. Look at it. Therefore, being justified by faith. You notice? Not by faith in works, not by faith in sincerity, not by faith in behaving, not by faith in baptism, not by faith in sacraments or ordinances or the law, by faith alone. Therefore, being justified by faith. And what's the result of that? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I urge you, if you've not trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, that you would do that. Today, you can't go to heaven another way. And if you will trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, the moment you do, your sins are taken away. He gives you everlasting life. If you're righteous, if you had no sin, could you go to heaven? Yes, yes. Yes. And so when you trust Christ, that is something that comes with that. Now, we're going to focus the rest of our time on two major issues in these opening verses. And those two issues are this, their example and our challenge. The example of the Thessalonian believers and our challenge. Remember, these are babes in Christ. These people were vibrant for Christ, and they're young believers in Christ. Can I ask you today, if you've been saved for decades, how vibrant is your Christian life? How faithful are we in serving the Lord with our lives? Have we gotten sidetracked with one thing or another and gotten off track because we're living for other purposes outside of the glory of God? It's something we all have to ask ourselves and answer, don't we? Let's look at their example. They were great examples. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, it says, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in, your prayer, in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Now, again, they hadn't been saved for long, but they were being fruitful and they were making an impact not only in their community, but all around the region. Let's look at these three things, remembering without ceasing. Okay, the first was this their work of faith. This is what they had already done. Okay, well, let me say this faith that is being exercised properly will result in works. Now, I didn't say faith automatically results in works. Did you notice that? Faith that is being exercised properly will result in works. Go with me to Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians chapter two. Their work of faith, their work of faith. In other words, their work which came through faith. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight through 10. It says this in verse eight, for by grace are you saved through faith, It's how you're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You're not saved by works. You're saved by God's unmerited favor, his undeserved kindness through faith in Jesus Christ. You're not saved of yourselves. It, salvation, is the gift of God. It's a gift. There's no strings attached. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation's a gift. You can't earn it. You can't keep it by your works. Either way. People say, well, you know, bad people go, to, uh, people go to hell because they're bad. No, people go to hell because they haven't trusted Jesus Christ. They haven't accepted the payment Jesus made for them. Yes, they, in a sense, they go to hell because they're still lost in their sin, but they haven't accepted the payment. This is the difference between heaven and hell for a person. He that believeth on him is not condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Friends, listen. The only difference between heaven and hell for a person is whether they've put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's the only way. It's the only way you'll be saved. Verses eight and nine, bear that out. But now once you're saved, what, is that it? Once you're saved, that's it? Okay, well, I'm saved now. It's all taken care of. Well, your eternal destiny is taken care of. But did you notice something, by the way? Did you notice that you're still here? You didn't get saved and God struck you dead. He didn't take you home. He left us here and he left us here for a reason. He has a life for us to live. He has a plan for our lives. In verse 10, bears it out. For we are his workmanship, the product made, literally. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we, notice the next word, should walk in them. Doesn't say we must. That would be works for salvation. Doesn't say we will because that would be Calvinistic teaching which would be false, okay? People say, well, you will walk in good works. Well, how many? Well, a lot. (laughs) Okay, define that. Well, you're just being nitpicky. No, I want some answers. Define that. Friend, here's the truth of it. If you trusted Jesus Christ as Savior and you never did one good thing, you still go to heaven because it's through what he did for you. That's the truth of it. Okay, But God does have a purpose for us, and he does have a life for us to live, and it is a life of good works by the power of the Holy Spirit. No question about it. See, they believed what they were taught and then they acted upon what they were taught. It is a logical progression. I'll give you an example sharing the gospel, the plan of salvation with those who are lost. If people are really lost, then it only makes sense for us to share the gospel with them. Because if they're really lost and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God and they never hear the gospel, they'll never get saved. And so if I have a friend who's lost and they've never heard the gospel, it only makes sense that I would share the gospel with them. You see, that need, that reality motivates me to do what I'm supposed to do. That's the work of faith. That's the work of faith. If we are convinced that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, we will share it. Look with me to Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. Paul emphasizes this in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. He says, This, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Now, hey, Paul, 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 let's stop for a minute. Let me ask you a question, bud. Why aren't you ashamed of the gospel of Christ? Well, that's a good question. Let me give you the answer. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He was motivated. He says, I'm a debtor. He says, I'm ready to share it, verses 14 and 15. And then he gets into verse 16 and he says, I'm not ashamed of the message. Why? Because that's how people get saved. And if they don't hear it, they can't get saved. So I'm not ashamed. You see, that's a work of faith. That's a work of faith. Secondly, back to Thessalonians, says remembering without ceasing your work of faith secondly your labor of love this is what they were doing as he writes they were laboring because of god's love for them and their love for him this is the way it's supposed to go in the christian life it begins with god's love for us and then as we get to know the lord and appreciate what he's done you know what we end up having a love for him and then that, by the way, spills over into a love for others. By the way, tonight, be here, 6 o'clock, 1 John chapter 3. We'll be talking about this. Their labor of love. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want you to see this. Hold your place in Thessalonians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Notice the language here. Very, very important. It says, for the, verse 14, For the love of Christ constraineth. Us. You notice, by the way, it doesn't say for our love for Christ. Did you notice that? It's the love of Christ constraineth us. It's God's love for us. The word constrain, it means to compel. The word was used to like being infected with something, to lie sick of. I am infected. I am affected. My whole body, my whole person is affected by God's love for me that's the idea. It controls me. It possesses me. For the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead and that he died for all and that they which live, that's us who are saved. They which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. God's love for me found in the gospel controls. It should control, it should compel, it should infect us, okay? It should be something that ends up controlling us. And when it controls us, guess what we end up doing? We become vehicles of God's mission and that's reaching other people. It's the labor of love, okay? They were laboring because of God's love for them, and as a result, they loved the Lord and they served him. Third, back to Thessalonians, their patience of hope. Their patience of hope. The word patience means endurance or perseverance. Their endurance came from their anticipation of the Lord to come back. Wow, boy, you're gonna see this over and over in our letter here. The word hope is the word means to anticipate. With joy, the expectation. It's a positive, exciting thing you're looking forward to. I kind of see it with kids and birthdays. They get all pumped about birthdays. My birthday's coming up. Well, that's an L piece kind of hope. That's the Greek word there, okay? Uh, uh, my birthday's coming up. They have anticipation with joy. Now, once you get older, it's like, <laughs> don't really care, you know? Birthdays kind of they're like a sign on the interstate that you pass. Zoom, zoom, zoom. They go by, right? Birthdays don't get us very excited. It's just a reminder that we're getting older. However, it is also a reminder that we're getting closer to home. And that's looking at it from a natural perspective. God could take us when we're children or teenagers or college age or whatever. All right? Their patience of hope though. Their endurance came from their anticipation of the Lord to come back. And that is a major motivating factor in a Christian life. And that is a huge deal that is important that by the way will keep you motivated as a Christian. It's not an accidental thing. It's designed by God. This is something that will come up time and time again as we study, and this should be a big motivating factor in our lives as well. Look with me to Titus chapter 2, after 2 Timothy. Titus chapter 2. Talking about the grace of God and that, that brings salvation, it's appeared to all men. The grace of God, not only that brings salvation, also teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And then it says in verse 13, looking for that blessed hope, looking for that blessed hope. The word looking, present tense, looking, we are looking, we are looking. Can I ask you today, have you been looking for Jesus to come back? You ought to be looking every single day for Jesus to come back. I say, ah, come on. People have been talking about this for 2000 years. Yes, sir. Guess what? God can't lie and it's going to happen. And I can tell you this, the fact that Jesus said it's going to happen and that he is God and that he cannot lie, you know what that tells me? That gets me more pumped because we're 2,000 years closer to the promise being fulfilled. Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. All right? Now let's go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And by the way, if you were to read on through that passage there in Titus, you would see that again, once again, the promise of the rapture is a motivating factor for us to live a godly life. We see it over and over again. By the way, don't you think it's interesting in light of where we started today? Church is not emphasizing prophecy. Church is not talking about the rapture. Church is saying, no, 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 you know, we don't go there we're not into the prophecy thing. You know, we, don't, we, don't, we just deal with the here and now. Let me tell you, friend, you're not dealing with the here and now the way God says to do it because a major motivator for the here and now is what's coming in the future. You're missing it. And so you've got Christians living with no concern about Jesus showing up at, at any minute and finding them in the middle of sin. No concern about that. No concern about the future, just here and now, you know, your best life now. Let me tell you something, you can't have your best life now if you're not looking for Jesus to come back. It's part of it. It's a major part of it. And we will see that as we continue here in our series. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Okay. Now people see that, the word election, and they, their blood runs cold. <gasps> oh, election, chosen. Oh no. I'm not going to be able to sleep at night. I wonder if I'm one of the elect. Let me ask you a question. Have you trusted Christ? Who? yeah, you're one of the elect. Have, you haven't trusted Christ? Well no, I haven't trusted Christ yet. Well you can be one of the elect. Trust Christ. See, Election is not God looking down time and saying, okay, I'm going to choose certain ones out of the human race to go to heaven. If he does that for some, he's also choosing an eternity in hell for the rest because everybody either goes to heaven or hell. No, God opens the door for everybody. Friend, listen, anybody can be saved. Anybody can be saved. Now, if you read the context carefully here, Okay, he's talking about remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. The word knowing means to see. As a matter of fact, it is translated as see more often than any other way in the New Testament, 317 times. In Matthew chapter 9, for the sake of time, we won't turn there, but you can see it on the screen. Matthew 9 verse 2, it says, and behold, they brought to him Jesus, a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed, and Jesus, seeing their faith, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of palsy, son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven them. Okay? What is Paul referring to here in 1 Thessalonians about seeing or knowing, uh, brethren, your election of God. Knowing, seeing your election of God. Well, in the context, it's very clear. Their election, folks, had to mean something different than what the Calvinists believe it to mean. Because here's what Calvinism teaches. You can't be certain, absolutely, that you're a Christian until you die in faith. That's what the perseverance of the saints is about. You have to persevere to the end. And if you persevere to the end, now you can know you're saved. But unless you persevere to the end, you can't know you're saved. Now, isn't it interesting? Paul knew their election of God. He knew they were saved. He addresses them as saved. He is simply referring to their salvation and the plan that God had for them that's the idea of knowing your election seeing your election okay what is he saying your salvation i see your salvation is the idea that he is getting at. Now, I understand people can live in a Christian way and not be saved. I get that, okay? I'm not saying if you're not living it, you're not saved. That's not the point. The point, though, is this. They were not only saved, they not only had the testimony, they were not only sharing the gospel of grace apart from works, but they were also living a vibrant Christian life in light of Jesus coming back. He recognized them as being Believers. He's simply referring to their salvation and the plan that God had for them. And by the way, that is clear from the context that this was the issue. We're going to see that in a moment in verses 5 through 10, which we'll cover more in detail next week. They were faithful with the gospel and they were faithful to the Lord in how they lived. And as a result, the reality of their faith could be seen in the way they lived their lives. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. James is all about that, right? This should be the case for every child of God. If people are watching us, and by the way, they are, here's the question. Are they seeing the reality of our faith in both the message we share and the lives we live? When somebody looks at me, do they see a Christian? When somebody talks to me, do they hear a Christian? That's the point. They were good examples, okay? Which leads us, by the way, to... Our challenge, and it is this. My salvation should be making a difference in the lives of other people. That's the challenge. Is my salvation making a difference in the lives of others? Or am I, instead of when I get with people who aren't saved, am I having a godly influence on them? Or are they having an ungodly influence on me? It should be the first one for those of us who are saved. That's what God has saved us for is to reach others. Look at, again, 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 5 through 10. I'm just going to read it. It says, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Watch this now. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that you were in examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God word is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. Wow. For they themselves show us what manner of entering in we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. So here's the challenge today. Is my salvation making a difference in the lives of others? Is yours making a difference? We see their example It was godly, and we see the challenge to you and me. Friend, Jesus is coming. He could come before the service is over. I'm ready to go. I hope you're ready to go. I have said it I don't know how many times. I would love nothing more than for the Lord Jesus Christ to come rapture us out while we are having church. I would hope that when Jesus comes to take us, if we're in church, that the Lord will allow me to look back from the sky and see all the Bibles sitting on the floor and on the seats, and all of us with him in one big group going forever to live in his presence. Wouldn't that be great? Let me ask you a question today. Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your personal savior? He loves you. He died for you. He offers you everlasting life, you can have it as a free gift. All you need to do is trust in Him, and He will save you, and He will give you eternal life. Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening, and would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, and God bless you.